Welcome to Burning Platforms, a podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. I'm Peter Lewis, and it's great to be back with regular panellists, Digital Rights Watch Chair Lizzie O'Shea and Guardian Australia Managing Director Dan Stinton. We return to 2023 with a special discussion on the politics of creativity with academic Rebecca Giblin and science fiction writer Cory Doctorow, co-authors of Choke Point Capitalism. Now, normally we do these as live events. We had the opportunity to interview um, Rebecca Giblin and Cory Doctorow, the authors of the fantastic new book, Choke Point Capitalism. So we thought we would just do a special one-off that will just go out, obviously, as a podcast. Um, but we'll stick to a bit of our, our, our format, I think, which is just to check in on each of the panellists and what's been really um, going on for them, particularly over the summer. The last time we were together, we were actually in a room um, at Vic Trades Hall with a live burning platforms, and that was a terrific event. Um, that was just before Christmas, and thanks for all of those listeners who, who turned up and was part of that, that evening. We hope to be doing some more of those events during the course of the year, and obviously we will be getting our virtual town halls back up and running as soon as I get my act together. Um, Lizzie, it's almost it's almost too late to be saying Happy New Year, but hi, um, 2023. What's been going on with you over summer apart from Henry? Yeah, still, still raising my baby. That's going well, which is good. But, um, yeah, I've been watching uh, a little bit this Royal Commission into RoboDebt over the summer, and it feels remiss to not talk about it um, in our first episode of the season because the revelations that have come out have been pretty harrowing. Um, it's quite clear that the relevant ministers didn't really ask any serious questions about, about the legality of the scheme, and the consequences were obviously really devastating for people who received these debt notices, including, you know, documented suicides and the like. And, you know, in some ways, um, it really confirms to me a lot of the suspicions that, that were held by uh, the Special Rapporteur on Extreme um, Poverty, wrote a r- really good report on this a, a couple of years ago about the digitisation of the welfare state and the, the potential for harm that can occur when we stop treating citizens as people with rights, but instead as almost like customers with um, obligations uh, to the state and that, that welfare is a privilege rather than an entitlement. And this all is coming out in the course of the the RoboDebt Royal Commission and um, you realise that the most vulnerable people are having to bear the consequences of, um, you know, over-ambitious automation programs, including in respect of debt collection. And then what I was also seeing was, you know, Bill Shorten's announcing what he likes to call a digital wallet for government services, so a one-stop shop for all government services that you can use your phone for. And I just start to worry that we're not going to learn the lessons of RoboDebt and that, in fact, what we're going to do is centralise government's um, service provision in digital formats without necessarily the accountability, the transparency that we need to make that work for, for vulnerable people who who rely on their services. So I think it's been a real turning point watching this because I think a lot of people who um, may have bought the narrative around people making use and exploiting welfare can see now how harmful it is when this is not done well uh, and that when we abuse the, the people who are dependent on the welfare system who are trying to do the right thing. And that's a good reset for the debate I just sort of hope that the next government's going to learn these lessons and and put them in place yeah Dan it was quite compelling the um the evidence particularly from one of the former media advisors to the minister um about how one one level is cynical and evil but the other way of looking at is really naive that they have a new technology that's got so much power and it just becomes another issue to manage now your journalists were fantastic at bringing the whole robo debt um 
issue to life. But I wonder your reflections on the role of media in bringing in in, in building narratives around new technology and taking cause to pause before it's just either a shiny new thing or something that's gone totally bad. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if this is a technology story. It was just it was just good reporting from um, Luke on Reeves Gomes on our side who who uncovered the fact that there was a whole bunch of people that were getting these automators messages and um, from the ATO saying they owed the money and and looked into it and, and revealed that it was basically because of a computer algorithm misfiring that they were getting them. I mean, what was compelling about the evidence over the summer though was particularly from uh, a couple of the ministers was it was it was an excuse of well the computer says no so therefore we couldn't do anything it was it was just mm. so um, blatantly blaming the technology without any sort of acknowledgement of the fact that the technology was set up by humans and it was set up badly uh, and it shouldn't have been set up in the first place I mean that's the story here isn't it so um, look we'll keep doing our job and reporting on it um, and hopefully there'll be some accountability from this but mm. um, I think it just shows the perils of outsourcing your decisions to machines. Guys, um, any hot takes from um, the perspective of choke point capitalism there on Ravadet? I mean, I think that the the way that this differs from just a normal bureaucratic boondoggle is scale, uh, and and obviously scale is an element of of the kind of monopoly stuff that we explore in our book. Uh, the damage that an individual bureaucrat who's a little uh, too fast with their red denied stamp can do is limited to the kind of human capability to raise and lower that stamp and re-ink it on the pad. Uh, a computer can uh, step in with the role of a capricious uh, and, and thoughtless bureaucrat at a speed that beggars the imagination. And of course, whenever we see machine learning being mooted, on the one hand, the people who promote it as a means of, of automating processes say, well, look, we can do things at a scale that would otherwise be intractable with humans. And then when they're criticized, they say, oh, but we'll put a human in the loop. Well, <laughs> if you're going to put a human in the loop, then you haven't, then you haven't uh, achieved scale that exceeds what a human can do. And um, if you aren't going to put a human in the loop, well, then you're just engaged in, in that computer says no, what, what Patrick Ball from the Human Rights Data Analysis Group calls a empirical face wash where it would be it would be uh you know malice or racism or cruelty if a human was doing it but once it's the maths that's doing it it's just you know they've they've some some objective plane has been uh has been modeled in the computer where uh, a you know perfectly spherical cow of uniform density has glided across a frictionless surface and determined that you're not going to get your benefits this month I love Patrick Ball's work. I think it's great. And if you haven't, if you're not familiar with it, you should Google it. But I completely agree. If the human in the loop is Christian Porter, you can be guaranteed, you can be sure he will not ask the relevant questions to determine whether it's legal or not. And he's basically confessed that in the in the Royal Commission as much. So anyway, Rebecca. One of the benefits of this happening at such scale is that so many people knew someone who was affected by it and saw how intensely problematic it was. And so that, I think, is where we perhaps hopefully have some cause for optimism. What I'm really sensing um, from the Australian public is that they want the government to be held accountable for this. But what I'm also hearing from the public service when I'm having discussions with, um, with people in all different departments is we can't have another robo-debt, we can't have another robo-debt. And so perhaps ultimately, like as, as tragic as it's been, perhaps we can finally learn something from some mistakes and put some processes in place to try and try and make that stick. Let's let's see what happens. It's the one form of machine learning that we can never seem to master yeah. is uh, <laughs> teaching the societal machine a lesson with feedback. Yeah. Yeah.
Well, speaking of machine learning, if you remember back um, at the end of last year, there was this whiz-bang new thing called ChatGTP. And at our live event, we had great fun working out whether the um, algorithm had written um, it or Dan had written it. Now, Dan, you spent a bit of time over summer um, thinking through a bit more deeply about what this means, particularly for your industry, the media. What's What's been going on in your head? Yeah, I mean, what was very disconcerting about that session, sorry to relive it, was that most people couldn't tell the difference between the machine or me, which I think speaks volumes about my personality, but um, we shall move on. Uh, Yeah, look, me, like, I guess, most of the planet have been pretty interested in what's been happening with artificial intelligence off the back of ChatGPT. But what's really focused the minds uh, for for me and, and my industry, particularly in the last week or so, is just how this is now being deployed in search. So we saw this first with Microsoft, with Bing, where they, they integrated um, ChatGPT-like functionality into the results. And just to give you an example of how this is potentially going to really change things from, from search for search is uh, you can ask a question like, why did Russia invade Ukraine? And it can come up with a, you know, a few paragraph response, which explains it with some sophistication with a whole bunch of sources um, that are referenced there. And then uh, Google have just announced their BARD system, which is going to do something very similar. Now, I've got two big concerns about this, which sort of flow on from each other. The first one is the use of the content itself to to determine these answers. So in that example of why did Russia invade Ukraine? Sure, Microsoft referenced, I think, five different sources on what that was. But the the, um, need for the consumer then to click through and actually read on those is pretty substantially reduced because their answers they're getting is pretty, pretty compelling. And so all of the, sorry to bring this back to a commercial point, but all of the commercial benefit of that sits with the search engine um, and they're doing that without paying any licensing fees. Now, obviously that's a concern for publishers. If I was Wikipedia, I mean, that would be, this would be keeping me up at night because surely all of these um, artificial intelligence that the, the the material that they are learning on, I'm sure Wikipedia plays a pretty disproportionately large role in that. So I'm wondering what their take on it would be. And then the flow on from that is if people aren't clicking through to publisher websites to source information anymore, does that mean that traffic to publisher websites is going to decline substantially, which is where we monetize the audience? Now, to a certain extent, this has always existed. Google One Boxes, other things have um, summarized news events on their search results pages. Sorry to mention the war, uh, Lizzie, but one of the central arguments of the News Media Bargaining Code was that that was preventing people from clicking through to publisher websites because more and more information was being displayed on the search engine results pages. This is that on steroids, right? Because the results are going to be even more compelling. The sources for that are going to be more opaque. And therefore, the need for people to click through to the actual publisher websites is going to be substantially diminished or could be substantially diminished if we don't get this right. So it's a really fascinating moment for the publishing industry. I think it probably touches on a lot of the things uh, in, in, in your book, which we're going to be discussing as well. Um, but I'm pretty concerned about where this is going because, as usual, it's going at the speed of light without much consideration to the downside of, of what this new technology is going to bring to, to incumbent industries. Yeah, Lizzie, what's your take on it? I, I must say I'm still at the toy phase. My 16-year-old um, spent a night debating communism with the engine and he got kicked off by the, by the AI. Um, but that's what happens when you, when you become strident and you're 16. How are you thinking it through? Well, my worry, I suppose, is that like with other forms of natural language processing trained on large volumes of material, there will be 
biases, prejudice baked into the, um, the raw material that's used to train the system or the, um, the artificial intelligence. I mean, Kate Crawford says that artificial intelligence is neither artificial nor intelligent, which I think is a good line. Um, but, you know, the machine learning, shall we say. <laughs> um, but what I was going to say was that has already proven to be a bit of a problem in chat GPT. Some people have been doing some experiments with writing performance reviews, for example, for certain, you know, jobs without mentioning gender and then uh, chat GPT immediately doesn't immediately, sorry, that's not true, In um, has a bias towards assigning genders to certain kinds of professions. As you can probably imagine, you know, engineers and nurses, these tend to be, um, you can imagine how a chat GPT learning from uh, large data sources that are available in terms of text would have a bias that those professions would be gendered. So, um, you know, nurses being women, engineers being men, and it goes on. And so I do wonder whether we might have a the same problem we were talking about before, this, um, this appearance of neutrality concealing um, biases that go on underneath and if we start incorporating that into searches you know I, I'd be really interested to re- interested to read what they think the causes are of the war in the Ukraine because of course uh, there's a multiple different perspectives on that um, ones that are perhaps critical of the US mission uh, or involvement there you know the role of um, or, or also you know other countries and NATO and the like so there's it's a much more sophisticated question mm. than I think you can just learn from a large cohort of news that has yeah. its own interaction biases, I think. And essentially to think, could you create an AI to game the AI so that if you wanted to push an outcome of chat GTP, can you actually work out a way of flooding the zone with disinformation so that what ends yeah. up in the truth <laughs> is your truth? Um, what do you guys reckon? Have you been playing with it, Corey or Rebecca? Uh, so I have lots of thoughts. I'll, I'll try to be brief because, boy, there's. I'm actually about to write something about this today. So the first thing is, I don't think it's good. I mean, just as a news summarizer, I think that uh, I'm not the first person to observe that ChatGPT doesn't know when it's lying, that uh, and it speaks with enormous confidence, irrespective of whether it's telling the truth or lying. Uh, I think that makes it very poorly suited to being a search summarizer. Um, and, you know, I've played with it as well and said, you know, to give me the bibliography of a writer I know well. And it's invented books out of the whole cloth, Ooh. made up books that the writer never wrote and summarized them for me. They're plausible. But, you know, I should look there for some inspiration. Anyway, yeah, indeed, you know, the parallel. Universe. <laughs> um, I, I, as to Google, I think that every time Google gets into this. So Google has this problem, which is that they're very bad at inventing things. Google has made one and a half successful products. They made a search engine and a Hotmail clone. Everything else they've built internally failed. Everything that they've succeeded with, they bought from someone else. But Google's self-image and source of enormous anxiety is that they call themselves an idea factory. And so, you know, back when Yahoo went into China and started search censoring search results, Google was stampeded into doing it too. Uh, And that lasted right up to the moment that China hacked Gmail and uh, they pulled out again. Then Google decided that they wanted to compete with Facebook. And so they decreed that all of their engineer salaries would be dependent on how much uh, Google Plus they could jam into every product, irrespective of whether it made it good. And Google just got, uh, the the term I use now is inshittified, right? Just everything was terrible and got progressively worse until until they pulled the plug on it. That, I think, is going to happen with BARD. I think they're going to make everyone's mm-hmm. KPI, their, their key performance indicator, and thus their bonus dependent on BARD integration without any regard to whether it makes the product better. 
Um, and, you know, all of this is like downstream of the monopoly problem, right? If Google had just been prohibited from purchasing uh, nascent rivals like YouTube and Android and their entire ad tech stack, their server management tools, their customer service tools, all of the stuff that they bought from other people, they, they just would not be this company in this position to do this thing. And then finally, I, I think that the impulse to then give exclusive rights to creators to determine who can study and learn from their work is both doomed as a, as a kind of um, speech and knowledge matter. Like we just shouldn't say that the person who made a thing gets to decide whether you can learn from the thing um, because no one would have been able to make anything under that regime. It would kind of be the end of history, but also back to the thesis of choke point capitalism and the monopoly problem. Whenever you give a new exclusive right to someone who is in a power imbalance, that exclusive right doesn't correct the power imbalance. The entity that is overpowering them simply makes handing over that right a condition of doing business. So when we gave musicians the right to control who could sample them, immediately record labels said, okay, from now on, every contract includes the rights to your samples. Um, there's a story by Joseph Cox on Motherboard today about voice actors being non-negotiably required to sign away their voice rights as for training an ML system. So, you know, maybe we'll give Rupert Murdoch the power to decide who can uh, summarize the news. And Rupert Murdoch is just going to make a contract, a News Corp contractual term that no one can vary that says you sign away your rights to Rupert Murdoch to learn from the news stories you write. It's not going to help journalists in the slightest. It'll just mm. give Rupert Murdoch more power. Let's, um, we, we want to get into your book very quickly. I'll just round out our sort of summer reflections. Um, the other thing that happened at the end of last year was I got voted off Twitter. Um, I've been really happy to be off Twitter over the summer. I had my 30 days in purgatory. My accounts lapsed. My followers are gone into the ethos. So I'm now, it's just me on my own a lot of the time. And it's been really nice. Um, but um, I am interested if I've been missing out on anything, guys. It's just kind of drama, drama that it's good to to avoid. I think. Go on. Sorry, Rebecca. I mean, Corey, you you spend a lot more time on Twitter than I do. But when I sort of pop in there, it just sort of feels like a dying mall. There's like tumbleweed vibes, and it does. <laughs> it, it there is that feeling that there's sort of no one there anymore. What do you? What's your feeling about how it's changing? I, it's you know, it's a vibe shift. I think. I mean, the numbers are are not terrible. They're they're down, but not not horribly down, from my understanding. But um. As Rebecca says, the the vibe has changed, and I think that's because of an enshittification process. Mm -hmm. Where you know, if Twitter just shows you the people you follow, then they mm -hmm. can't monetize your feed, mm -hmm. right? Some something they need. Every ad is a thing from someone mm -hmm. you don't follow. Um, every boosted post is a post from someone you don't follow. If you know, you're only going to read so many posts every day, and so if a hundred percent of that is things that you asked for, then zero percent of it is something that. Um, Twitter can charge someone money to show you. Mm. Uh, and so the feeds, you know, the um, Musk is trying to arrive at an equilibrium where Twitter is nearly so bad that you stop using it, but not quite so bad because what he wants to do is move value from users and posters to shareholders, mm. namely himself, uh, which is the life cycle of every platform. That's the, that's mm. the, the enshittification crisis and a two-sided market is that first you want to lure in customers and give them a good deal. And then once they're all locked in, you lure in business customers to sell them things and you give them a good deal. And then once they're all locked in, you, you just make things miserable for all of them. You know, the first five screens of an Amazon search are 50% ads. And of the 50% of 50 that's not ads, a good 20% are products that Amazon has cloned from its uh, business customers. 
And so, you know, that that's that's kind of the, the the death cycle of these things. They try to hit that equilibrium. They try to surf the wave of just nearly so bad you stop using it. But any exogenous shock, any overstep, mm-hmm. any person who's KPI, you know, they, they're really like leaning into that KPI because they want a big bonus because they want to take the family on a ski holiday this Christmas. They're, they're um, you know, that can tip the platform over into the point where it's just not worth using. And then it trundles along on inertia and then it becomes my space and then it disappears. Are you feeling a bit soiled being in there, Dan? <laughs> uh, I was never the heavy user that I think everyone else on this uh, meeting has been. I'm, I'm more of a voyeur and use it really just to see, to read the news from different sources because it it, it was a very good source for that. And I would say that my experience, anecdotal, you group of one, is that it, it has um, degraded somewhat because so many of the people that I follow are, including you, Peter, are, are, are not on there anymore. So you, you therefore you come across less things. No, I mean, not the key dad, lesson, probably the obvious jokes. lesson. Is that what you're saying? Less, just less dad here. jokes. Fewer, fewer dad jokes. <laughs> I don't know. We're having a talk on the phone, Peter. It's horrible. Um, <laughs> but um, the, the, the key lesson, and probably an obvious lesson, is it just shows the value of moderation. I mean, this is, this is the problem, right? So Elon has come in with all of his bluster, you know, all about free speech so that supposedly you know, decimated the the safety team. And as a consequence, the kind of content which is on there is worse. And brands have gone, well, I don't want my brand to have anything to do with that. And so advertising has fallen through the floor. I mean, it's just, apart from it being the right thing to do to have good, effective, transparent moderation uh, and, and substantial teams that are working on this, it's also good for business. And I think what this has shown is that he's just absolutely missed that point and is now trying to, you know, scramble to this subscription kind of, business model but there's probably not going to be enough people there left to do it unless he gets his skates on so i mean look you know you wouldn't you wouldn't write it off yet but it's just i i agree with uh with your point before Rebecca. it feels like digital tumbleweeds sort of rolling through there on occasion when you when you go on so um it's gonna be interesting to see what happens in the year ahead it's it look he's never getting his money back though right it's it's never ever going to be worth 44 billion dollars again uh, at least not in our lifetime i just can't see that ever happening and, and Lizzie, I'm still trying to work through where whether I need a home. I, I I can't work out Mastodon. People have talked up Discord as a really good alternative if I can find my communities. I saw some guys that run a fantastic cricket podcast over the summer. They've got a really vibrant, closed community there. Um, can't do Facebook. Do we need? Do we need social? Do we? Are we going back to the hair shirt? Could you live without social media altogether? And is that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I probably, I'm sure I could, you know what I mean? But I also, it also feels like um, uh, there's a sadness in that because one of the great things about the internet is the capacity to communicate with people from, you know, outside of your uh, physical circle, but, you know, even um, your social one as well. So it's, it's, we've talked about this before. How could you find alternatives that are not based on the profit motive, that are not prioritising engagement over meaningful connection? And I think that's the question we need to answer, not... Do we need to have online spaces? Because we absolutely do. That's one of the great things about the internet. But how do we make them work? Or how do we create them? And, and can, you know, what kind of, how can we incentivize the kind of labor that makes them functional uh, without relying on the profit motive? And this is the, the question for our age. And I think there's a role for public investment and, and the like. And we've talked about that before. You've edited a whole book on that. And, you know, this is the thing I think we need to keep talking about. Yeah. I mean, if you look, look back to, you know, look at the work of people like um, Douglas Rushkoff. Kate Rayworth and talking about the need for sustainable economic systems that are not based on infinite growth. Uh, isn't that 
arguably the solution, right? Because if we can grow something to the point where it's sustainable, you don't have to have this drive towards enchidification. Um, it reaches maturity and then we can continue on. If we if we can introduce that into our economy um, and our economic structures, we're going to be so much better off. That sounds like a fantastic segue into choke point capitalism. Um, so the way, and I don't want to, I think one of the problems with really complex books is that then you get introduced with the, you know, the elevator pitch. Um, so without diminishing it, and I'm really happy for you guys to push back, but it seems to me your central thesis is that the internet was meant to get rid of the gatekeeper and instead, particularly with um, culture, what we've seen is the gates get bigger and we've got this um, world now where, it's not working for the consumer and it's not working for the creator. Um, Is that fair? It's bigger than just the internet. This comes back to those broader economic structures that we were just talking about. Um, It, it, you know, say, say what you like about capitalism, but you're fundamental to it is supposed to be competition, right? This idea of, of free trade between buyers and sellers. Now, what we've seen over the last 40 years is a shift in there where um, the richest people on the planet have mostly achieved that wealth by eliminating competition. If Peter Thiel coming out and saying competition is for losers, you know, Warren Buffett only wants to buy up and, or invest in companies that have got moats that can you know, prevent other competitors from entering the market. And yes, we certainly see that with the internet. We've got some um, some companies that are very cleverly erected choke points, but the creative industries have always had this. Um, the the record industry, when the, when the the major labels controlled physical distribution, um, they were even more abusive towards recording artists than what they are today. And in fact, the internet by widening some of their choke points out and creating new ways for artists to make music and reach consumers actually forced them to um, uh, reform some of the biggest abuses. But what we are seeing is, you know, even in that space, um, as streaming becomes established and the we're down to now just the, the big three record labels that control almost 70% of the global recorded music market. They designed the streaming market. Uh, so between themselves and Spotify, they've arranged things so that it benefits them disproportionately over everybody else. So there's sort of a re-choking uh, of these markets. So the, prob- the problem is not the internet. Um, it's not that there's not enough copyright. It's not that creators aren't working hard enough. Mm. It's not that all the rest of us aren't working hard enough. It's that we're seeing this progressive, inexorable decline of competition that sees um, the the value of all of our labor being increasingly sucked up um, by a small class of shareholders and executives. Yeah, I wasn't trying to attribute blame to the internet per se. I was just more interested in, and maybe, Corey, you can come in, the promise of the internet was to flatten those structures and create those connections. And that's what hasn't happened, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a a great Kiwi software developer, um, uh, Tom Eastman, who, uh, if anyone's listening, he's looking for a job, I've just heard, who who once tweeted, uh, I'm old enough to remember when the web wasn't just five giant websites filled with screenshots of text from the other four. And it's a (laughs) phrase that's really stuck with me. Now, I, I think that you know, the, there's a kind of inevitableist story that says, oh, well, that was always going to happen. That's what a mature market looks like. And, and as we talked about with Google earlier, it's not true. 
uh, the decision to allow firms to acquire their competitors, the, the creation of legal regimes that allows them to exclude new market entrants. Uh, so they either buy them or they exclude them one way or the other. You don't get competition. Uh, all of that. And, and, you know, in the case of the arts, the decision to make copyright last longer, which means that once a firm expropriates a bundle of copyrights from creators or acquires a competitor and the, its portfolio of copyrights, it then acquires this durable power, you know, a 90 year sort of, which in the case of music, that might as well be forever. There's, there's the amount of music we listen to that's more than 90 years old is just a rounding error. Uh, so, you know, the, the, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but still, I mean, uh, recordings, not compositions. Sure. Um, you know, the, the, once, those, once, those are, once those are acquired, they just become a, a, for, a source of market power. And, and as with the voice artists, voice uh, actors who are now being told to sign away the new right that they that uh, other artists are arguing they should get, which is the right to decide who can train an ML with your with your creative work. You know, once these firms have the choke points, it, you can just keep handing artists more exclusive rights, and it's not going to make a damn bit of difference. You know, the analogy we draw in the book is giving your bullied kid extra lunch money. It doesn't matter how much lunch money you give that kid; the bullies are still going to take it, and that's true. Whether or not the bullies are, you know, using some of that stolen lunch money to run a campaign saying, won't someone think of the poor, starving school children of Australia, give them more lunch money, that lunch money that you give them is still going to go to the bullies. And so, you know, we need these systemic interventions. So the first half of the book is just sort of explaining how this plays out. A lot of it's a little eye-watering. There's a, a term from finance called MIGO, which stands for my eyes glaze over. And this is, you know, any kind of performative complexity in a, in a financial instrument that is meant to, you know, just sort of make you think that anything that's complicated must be good. You know, as, as they say, a, a pile of shit this big has got to have a pony underneath it. Uh, and and <laughs> we, we unwind some of those scams. But the second half of the book, we're just like, all right, breaking up companies is hard. Took 69 years to break up AT&T. Godspeed every regulator in the world who's, who's trying to break up companies right now. What else can we do? Do we have to wait 69 years? Or can we intervene in specific ways that address these specific scams that we've unwound to actually change the distributional outcome of the arts so that rather than, you know, giving artists the right to feel aggrieved at their audience, which is what additional exclusive rights do, it, it actually like gives them money to pay for groceries and rent and braces for their kids' teeth. And can I just uh, chime in for anyone who's listening that has started reading the book and like gave up after throwing it against the wall, just like in full rage. We've had a lot of feedback from people about how incredibly enraging the first half of it is because they kind of all knew how they, they sort of had a, a feeling that things were bad. And some of, you know, many of them work in a particular creative industry and knew how bad it was there. But the cumulative effect of seeing how these different scams, which are all using the same playbook, even though they use different tools, whether it's recorded music or um, e-books or physical books or audio books or Hollywood screenwriting. They're using different tools, but it's always the same playbook. Those people um, do give it another go because the second half I do think is really hopeful, mm -hmm. right? We come up with like once, once we, we show that the problem is actually one of power imbalance, it changes the way that we can think about solutions. And, you know, while we, we know that breaking companies up doesn't work particularly well, it can be very slow, very expensive, and it's particularly tricky in the cases of excessive buyer power or monopsony, which is what we talk about. You know, Amazon has lots of buyer power over publishers and authors. Um, Hollywood talent agencies have a lot of power over writers and directors. Um, 
we do know what does work, and that's interventions that directly regulate buyer power, um, that create countervailing power in workers and producers. Um, and and what was the other one? Oh, yeah, encouraging um, new entrants into markets. So I have, have read the whole thing <laughs> now, but I, I do understand that philosophy because the first half certainly it is pretty eye-watering, some of the ways in which creative markets have been shaped by key players. And I did just want to pause on that a little bit um, to get what you think the reaction has been to that because often when we think about copyright, we think, oh, this is a friend to the author or we think about Spotify and we think, oh, it's allowing creators of music to access all these new uh, listeners that they would otherwise not have. And, you know, it's returning to that kind of nexus of um, what the digital age has also permitted um, or exacerbated in the, in the case of the choke points you're describing because it, it has opened up new audiences for people. But I wanted to know whether that is the kind of reaction that you commonly get when you talk about this because this the first half at least is a quite a clear debunking of that or that the benefits don't flow economically from the great uh, expansion of, of audiences and readerships and you know, whatever it may be in which creative industry. But I do wonder whether creatives themselves still cling to these kind of retrograde way, retro ways of um, monetizing their wares and what the reaction has been from some of the creative communities because they've got a lot in common fighting some of these big, you know, large companies that that make huge profits from the the labour that they do that's kind of essential to society. I am committed to thinking that creative work is kind of essential to a good society. But I wonder whether they are taking it or what's the reaction been from creative communities? It's actually been incredibly positive. Um, so we we were not sure how much it would cut through and and resonate with people, but we've heard from like individual creators, sort of all the way up uh, the chain, from people just starting out to to uh, extremely successful ones. Um, people like Margaret Atwood endorsed the book. She said, "We tell how the vampires crash the party and provide the protective garlic." Stephen Fry said, "This book gets it." Um, but also our trade associations, creator um, unions, and bodies have been getting into touch regularly, um, initiating new conversations. We've been talking about building new coalitions. It really does feel that in so many cases, the scales have fallen from, from a lot of people's eyes and they've, they've seen what, well, you know, before maybe they were seeing that arguing for more copyright wasn't necessarily translating to, to, to very much money in their pockets, but they kept getting, you know, sold this theory of trickle-down economics um, and that was the best that they thought that they had. Um, and a lot of these people are now starting to say, and we see this conversation um, on social media and people emailing us directly and saying, oh, actually, there is this other way. Um, and I'm, I'm actually really heartened. One of the one of the great things that has happened lately, has anyone else noticed some good things have happened? Um, but the, the, the new national cultural policy, mm. I was really encouraged by some of the language in that that talks about um, actually improving outcomes for for artists and creators as distinct to rights holders. And um, the Attorney General, when the press release announcing the, the recent copyright enforcement review, talked about the problem of, of artist royalty theft and leakage, um, which again is really encouraging change of language. Um, we've seen in the EU, in the 2019 directive, the introduction of new rights for creators that are actually aimed at helping creators level the playing field in their interactions with um, the, both the, the, the intermediaries that invest in getting their works produced and those that license it downstream like YouTube. And so things like... Um, um, rights to transparency over how works are being used, what kind of revenue comes in from that and how their share is calculated. 
um, rights to get their, their, their copyrights back if they're no longer being commercially exploited um, and, and rights of fair remuneration. So these are all really, really exciting green shoots and things that um, I really think that we should be talking about here in Australia, about how we introduce that kind of initiative to change that power balance. I think there's also been a certain degree of disenchantment, you know, so that it, I, I think it's a bit like when China stopped accepting pl uh, plastic nominally for recycling, which was really just China accepting plastic to put it in landfills. And people suddenly realized that all this plastic that they had been diligently cleaning, sorting, separating and putting out in their bins was literally just being sailed halfway around the world and, and stuck in a hole. And I think a lot of people had heard this kind of half smart idea that if you're not paying for the product, you're the product and said, oh, right, well, I'll just go pay for the product and <laughs> discover that paying for the product is itself not an, not a sufficient condition for being given any kind of dignity or, or ensuring that you're participating in a, in a good supply chain. And, um, you know, the 40-year the, the doctrine that we are now, I think, at the tail end of that all that matters is your consumer choices and not your political engagement. And that all uh, that the only way to really vote is to vote with your wallet, which is to say that the richest among us get lots of votes and the poorest among us get none. Uh, that that voting with your wallet has limits. It was never very powerful. It's gotten less powerful under conditions of monopoly. And, uh, and, that, and that you really need to throw in with big systemic solutions. There's just not easy answers. And, you know, one of the things that happens every time people hear about this book, they say, well, what can I do? And we always have to say, well, you, what you can do is get involved in a movement. Um, you, you know, there's a, a great bit in Zephyr Teachout's book about monopolies called Break Em Up, where, where she says, if there's a big protest at your local Amazon warehouse and you miss it because you spend two hours driving around looking to buy artisanal micer, markers for your protest sign because you don't want to order your markers from Amazon, Amazon wins. Uh, that fetishizing your consumer choices always in a zero-sum world comes at the expense of making, um, you know, big, substantial, important interventions as part of a movement. And so, you know, I think we've been neutralized for 40 years, and I think we're waking up to the, to, to the cynicism of that ploy. The soft plastic scam is such a great example of this, right? All of that time and energy that we spent diligently sorting our plastics out is time and energy that we could have spent demanding investment in better packaging, proper pricing of plastics into the into the the value chain, um, and demanding that things be different. So we've we're like years behind where we should be in terms of the development of those alternative packagings because we were anesthetized by this illusion that we were doing something individually. Um, and it turned out that we weren't at all. And it's the same thing, I think, um, with artists being told that they just need to, to to fight really hard for more copyright. You know, people looking up now and going, I've just been washing this plastic, you know, for it to be dumped in landfill. You're making me think I shouldn't have gone off Twitter after all, but anyway. Um, <laughs> Dan? Um, oh, look, a few thoughts. I mean, just, just picking up on what you were saying earlier, Corey, about getting involved with the movement. One of the things that I've been encouraged by, particularly in the last year or two, is that, you know, antitrust or, or uh, competition policy does seem to be becoming quite a mainstream idea again. I mean, I think we've gone through this very strange period of this sort of Chicago School of Economics, which was all about consumer prices. And, you know, if consumer prices stayed low, the theory was, a, a flawed theory in my view, the, the theory was that there wasn't any harm done. And I think what we've seen with the arrival of the internet and the arrival of those gigantic players is that, 
their products are free, their, their strength comes from aggregating consumer demand, and therefore it's harder to see the harm. We're now going back to that kind of old school Brandeisian school of, of antitrust, which, which says that actually when you have big companies, they can exploit workers, they can exploit creators, as we've been talking about, they can exploit a whole bunch of people. And I think it's it's now becoming mainstream. I think that the you know it's gone from being something which the technocrats were interested in to hopefully becoming something which the general public is interested in. So, you know, I guess my plea would be everyone starts to, to pay attention to, to competition policy and actually gets involved in, in that and speaks to their, you know, political parties about the fact that this is actually really important, really important. And, um, and it's really difficult actually being based in Australia because it's hard for us to do much down here because so many of these companies are based in the US, but I'm encouraged by the fact that it's becoming more mainstream uh, in the US. I've just got one last question, if I could, uh, and it relates very much to, to my area. We've talked a lot about the impact on the creators and, and the like and, and how they're really being continued to be exploited by the dominance of these, these large platforms. It's also happening with professional content though, right? Like obviously uh, I'm looking at this through the publisher lens as, as managing director of The Guardian, but we see the same thing there, right? Like if you are even really large companies, even News Corp, you know, for example, can be re- reduced to a minnow in these circumstances and have to accept the terms that these large tech pump companies I- impose on us. W- what do we do there? I mean, I, I, we've had some success with this, I think, in Australia with some regulation, but what, what's what's your take on it? Well, what we argue in the book is that this is all the same problem. Uh, so we, we talk about we talk about these these power imbalances in the context of creative workers, but also creative investors, producers, um, the the even the the bigger record labels now are now starting to see the struggle as Spotify with its control of playlists, which is um, it's carefully um, made sure that it obtained in order to control what it puts in people's ears, which then disintermediates those big record labels the same way that they have have. Have, have cut the lunch of, of rec- recording artists. Um, it's all the same fight and it's not limited to the creative industries either. Right? So, so many of us, including here in Australia, are working in choke-pointed industries. Um, so any any uh, food producer that is trying to sell into the local grocery chains knows how difficult it is to um, make a living when you're dealing with Coles and Woolworths um, and, and you're trying to provide you know, dignified um, conditions for your workers. Um, and and so we really try and show that everything here, this this decline, this steady decline in in uh, in competition, the um, the way in which capital has managed to pull so far ahead of labor in terms of the share that goes to who, it's all the same problem and it's all part of the same fight. And so we talk about building a movement. Corey, you tell this story better than me. Um, talk about um, Jamie Boyle. and. Oh, yeah, Jamie. sure. Yeah, so our, our, we have a colleague, James Boyle, who's a copyright scholar, Scottish, but he lives in, in North Carolina and teaches at Duke where he runs the, the Center for the Public Domain with Jennifer Jenkins. And Jamie says that, you know, before the term ecology was coined, people didn't know that they had the same fight. They, they You know, if you care about owls and I care about the ozone layer, how are we on the same side? What What is, you know, the gaseous composition of the upper atmosphere have to do with charismatic nocturnal avians? But the 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 word ecology crystallizes a thousand issues into one movement. And there are people who are angry because 
all the beer is controlled by two companies and there's people who are angry that all the shipping is controlled by three companies all the eyeglasses in the world as well as every high street retailer you've ever heard of as well as the largest insurer in the world and more than 50 percent of the lenses in the world all made by one company luxotica essilor which has raised the price of glasses a thousand percent in a decade um all these people don't know it but they're fighting the same fight you know back back where i'm from in ontario Teachers and nurses are are sort of on the brink right now of going out on on massive strikes, uh, and um, they are facing the same issues that that we are, and they're also facing these issues uh, in, in terms of trying to you know spend their money wisely and coming out on the wrong side. So the Ontario Teachers Pension Fund. Uh, for years was funding the red top right wing newspapers that were advocating for the abolition of public education. Uh, and, you know, it just shows you the limits of market participation as a way of affecting political change. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I wanted to say one other thing, and, I, and I've just lost the thread of it. Um, uh, oh, so, I, yeah, so, like, there's never just one ant, and there's never just one monopoly, right? When you get a monopoly in your supply chain, the rest of the supply chain has to monopolize to defend itself. So the, what you're describing here, where um, entities that produce news are having to merge into these uh, powerful bargaining units so that they can push back against the entities that bring news to the market is, is a dynamic that's across every sector. So in the US famously, the pharmaceutical industry became super concentrated and put the screws to hospitals who uh, then formed regional monopolies so that they could resist the excessive uh, seller power of the pharmaceutical companies, and they could exercise buyer power to lower prices, but then they turned around and put the screws to insurance companies who then merged to monopoly uh, so that they could resist the price gouging from the hospitals. And so now you've got this super concentrated chain of insurers, hospitals, and pharma companies, along with ancillary companies like pharmacy benefit managers, hospital bed companies, and so on. And then at either end of that chain, the disorganized bits that are not merged to monopoly, that are super vulnerable to these predatory industries, are patients who are paying more and getting worse outcomes than at any time in American history, and healthcare workers who are getting yeah. paid less and enduring worse working conditions than at any time in American history. And the, the lesson of this is that although you can bring some temporary relief, and it may even be a good idea to bring some temporary relief to part of the supply chain by allowing them to do anti-competitive things like uh, form a cartel to do news bargaining, uh, it, it doesn't resolve the issue in the long run because it's the temptation for that new concentrated part of the supply chain to then put the screws either to its buyers or its sellers is irresistible. And then that begets another monopoly and another and another, another cartel, another and another. And in particular, back to this idea of exclusive rights, the one thing I'm very skeptical of in the news industry is creating exclusive rights over quoting, summarizing, and linking to the news. I just think that's a terrible idea. Speaking as someone who's written the news for, for 20 years, um, I rely on quoting, summarizing, and linking to the news. Uh, if you're not allowed to talk about the news, it's not the news, it's a secret. Meanwhile, when you look closely at what's going on in the sector, it's not that uh, Facebook is stealing the news or Google is stealing the news, but what they are absolutely and unambiguously doing is stealing money by rigging the ad markets. You know, there's this, this new FTC uh, lawsuit against uh, Facebook over its ad rigging, or against Google, rather, over its ad rigging. There's an existing one against Facebook. 
and and the Facebook one, you know, we 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 got through discovery. We got the the de details of a thing called Jedi Blue, which was a secret illegal program between Facebook and Google to rig the ad market. All kinds of shenanigans. Again, we're getting into Migo territory, but header bidding rigging and lots of other, you know, buying other intermediaries to keep a certain fixed percentage within the market, punishing uh, news uh, entities that didn't use. Uh, Google for their ads by downranking them in the search and then pretextually saying that that's because they weren't using AMP pages, which is like more eye-watering nonsense. And, you know, we could get into like all the details here, but the, you know, the sort of the, the top line version here is if you didn't let, do your ads through Facebook and Google, uh, they would punish you and you wouldn't get any traffic. And if you did do your ads through Facebook and Google, they'd steal all the money that you were owed from the ads. And so, okay, so I, I, I think I have lots to say on the ads thing, but I think we're not going to have time for me to say yeah. it, but I think I broadly agree with you. And to be clear, I also agree with you that we should be able to discuss and summarize the news. That's, that's the point, right? What I am objecting to and what I'm concerned about is these artificial intelligence um, platforms are hugely expensive and by definition are only going to be controlled by a very small number of the very largest tech platforms. And if all of the benefits of them being able to do oh. that only flows to them, it's exactly what you're talking about in your book, right? Like this is exactly. this is a problem and that's what yeah. we need to be aware of, I think. I'm, um, but sorry, Peter. Back, back no, to no, I think that's true of all capital in intensive industries. And I'm reading a brilliant book right now that comes out in the spring by Brian, Mer Brian Merchant uh, called uh, Blood in the Machine. That's a history of the Luddites. And he's really trying to re rehabilitate the Luddites because they weren't anti-loom activists. They were pro-labor activists. Yep. They had a whole plan for how to introduce looms in a way that was would minimize disruption. They wanted existing laws to be obeyed. There were laws against the kind of automation that was uh, being uh, undertaken, and those laws were being flouted. Meanwhile, the, the laws against breaking looms were being punished, and, and the punishments were being ratcheted up right, right all the way to, to uh, capital. They just wanted to make an honest stocking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I agree that we need to address the systemic problems. I just am I'm skeptical that exclusive rights are going to do it. I also just think that um, we, we should be leery of, of critter hype, right, where you have someone who says, look, I've made magic. And then we all go, oh, my God, magic has been unleashed in the world. What are we going to do about it? I don't think ML is magic. I think that it's a stochastic parrot. I think it's a bullshitter. It doesn't know when it's lying. I think that there are very serious limits to asking uh, bots to summarize the news. Uh, and, and you know, CNET tried it and they got, uh, they had to do more corrections on those stories than any story they've ever, than anything else they've ever published. And that's with doubling the amount of editorial time they spent vetting the articles the ML produced. I just, I'm, I, I think it's going to like, I think the risk is more that it's going to suck and it's going to get crammed down our throats than that it's going to um, work so well that it makes news untenable. Like, I mean, that is also a terrible problem if it happens, but I, mm -hmm. I think we should, we should go with Occam's razor here and say that it's far more likely to suck than to be a, a, a moment of genius. Yeah, I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the solutions that you propose, because I, I agree that when you're reading this, it does feel refreshing to think outside of just the antitrust box, just about breaking up big companies, because I don't think that's all we need to do. I think that it's much bigger than that, or the, comp the problem is more complex, but also there's multiple fronts in which you can resist this kind of stuff. But one of the things that comes to mind when you're talking about kind of centralization is that it's it doesn't strike me as necessarily a bad thing. Like it should be the case that it's easy to access millions of listeners for your music and that there's a central point 
to which they might come. But it's actually the profit motive attached to that central point, which is what gives rise to the vice. And of course, it's more complicated than that. But one of the things that I, you know, you talk among other solutions about collective ownership and what I was wondering, I mean, maybe you meant some of this, but didn't explicitly say it, but I I was curious about your thoughts about doing something like um, socializing or nationalizing some of these companies that give rise to these choke points, like something like Twitter as it dies this you know, Elon Musk-fueled death, um, you could imagine how it could be turned into a publicly owned kind of um, version of itself. You know, like we talked about Wikipedia before, that's the traditional example that's commonly used in books about the internet, as a non-commercial website that is very successful and extremely popular. Like it's got its faults, but it does work for what it says it's, it's doing. And I wonder whether you know, investment by the state, but also exploring alternative ownership arrangements is what you had in mind. That comes with negatives, I think, too. It's worth acknowledging. But, you know, what is the role of the state as potentially the surveillor in chief, but also as as an entity that can afford to actually buy out some of these massive companies and potentially create spaces that are not motivated by profit, what is the role of, of governments in these contexts um, in terms of canvassing collective ownership? We think that there can be, and particularly in providing like collectively owned infrastructure that removes some of the biases that do come from the, the profit motive, but also from those um, architectures being designed by people who are the biggest beneficiaries of existing systems. And then, oh, well, what a coincidence, the new one also disproportionately benefits them. And so we talk about this, for example, in the context of um, music streaming and the idea of having a national digital music library where you can, and that's built that's built on a proposal of Henderson Cole about how you could go about doing that. But we do think that by changing those ownership structures and, and taking advantage of, you know, there's so much um, terrific code already out there that's openly sourced, transparent, that has um, mission-focused people, values-driven people working on it. Um, there's a lot of that is already there. It just requires a bit more investment and some leadership to be able to sort of take that up and provide an alternative. And, and What's really attractive about this proposal is that, you know, in order to do it um, fairly economically, you wouldn't have any of those those um, bells and whistles like the creepy uh, stalking that uh, Spotify does by trying to, like, push all of these mood based playlists down your throat and then sell to advertisers the snake oil idea that, oh, well, this person is depressed. This person is joyful. Like, you know, think about what kind of ads you want to give them. And like, that means that we're, we're, we're providing you with more value, right? You wouldn't be able to afford the surveillance. And that is a feature, not a bug. Um, Corey, you got anything? Yeah, I, I mean, I think infrastructure is the right, the right phrase here. Like, I don't know if we need the government to own Twitter, but, you know, uh, Peter, you mentioned Mastodon. I would I would suggest giving it another try. It's gotten a lot better over the summer. There's been there's been tons and tons of um, R&D and code commitments and minor and major improvements as a result of all of the interest in it. Uh, and, you know, yes, there's going to be a bit of a learning curve because it's not quite exactly Twitter, but it, it's not supposed to be. You know, it's it's resistant to the failure modes that Twitter has. It's more of a flotilla where you have, you know, one person canoes and giant ships with 30,000 people in them all kind of loosely moving together than it is a single service run by one person. And governments can do things there like uh, providing uh, backstopping insurance for, for owners of services so that you can afford to run a service for 10 of your mates without worrying about liability that puts you, you know, costs you your house if, if uh, 
you know, someone posts something that's a copyright infringement or, um, you know, governments could contribute code and security audits to this so that you don't have to worry about having uh, your server plundered. They could do all kinds of things that would make this better. And, you know, there is a model for this already, you know, in the White House under Obama decided to adopt Drupal, which is a, a big open content management mm. system to run uh, mm. the White House's website on. They didn't um, produce a bunch of proprietary code. They instead used public funds to produce public benefit by pushing back their improvements to the code uh, into the wider community. Now everybody can benefit from it. Um, that's the kind of commons that governments are well situated to contribute to without owning, right? They, they're, they're simply providing stewardship without ownership uh, and improvement. And that means that you can get con uh, contributions across governments, including governments that are hostile to one another or that are trade adversaries that still redound to the benefit of the people uh, they represent. Um, and, and, you know, I would love to see more public investment in things like Mastodon mm -hmm. rather than taking Twitter into private ownership, because as you say, surveiller in chief, I think anyone who lived through the post 9-11 era has to be skeptical of the idea that the, our public square will be managed by the same people who lied us into a 20-year war in Iraq. Can I just round out the conversation? We're almost out of time just um, with a focus back on the creator. Now, Corey, unlike me, you're a very successful author. Um, I don't know the degree to which copyright has been part of your business model, but I'm interested from someone whose primary mission in life is to be a creative producer. What is the world you would like to see for someone like you? So when I was a baby writer, there were uh, 300 uh, uh, distributors that distributed to the mass market, which is the non-bookstore trade. That's where most science fiction was sold back then. Um, the reason there were 300 of them is because the non-bookstore retailers, uh, chemists, grocers, and so on, were primarily uh, uh, standalone businesses or small regional chains. Um, there was an enormous diversity of, of work distributed to a very wide set of publics. And they were published by 30 approximately same-sized publishers in New York. Today, there are five publishers in New York. There is one national mass market distributor. And there are three or four major big box stores where nearly all the mass market sales take place. And uh, I think that we are now in a position where if our dictators aren't benevolent, uh, or if they are benevolent, but they're not perfectly competent, they can inflict just titanic harms on, on so many writers and so many writers' careers. And when I wake up in a cold sweat worried about my future as a writer, I worry about one of those elephants stepping on me. I worry about a distributor making a choice, a retailer making a choice that maybe without even thinking about my work, just, just more broadly, um, and that extinguishing my career. Uh, and, you know, I've seen it happen to colleagues uh, I watched it happen over the 30-year transformation to where we are now. Uh, and it, I think it is the greatest existential risk we have. Guys, thanks for the discussion. It's been fantastic. Really looking forward to um, your ideas taking taking hold. Um, recommend highly Choke Point Capitalism to everyone listening and have a great book tour. Um, you are in Sydney next week at the state library i know but we'll send out with an email any other events you're 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 appearing at because right. fantastic right. conversation in melbourne canberra next week and uh, brisbane tonight, but that's sold out and too late for everyone anyway <laughs> have a good one guys thanks a lot thanks so much right. thank you bye and this was burning platforms recorded on february 8th it was produced on gadigal land by jennifer macy we'll be back with our regular series of live virtual town halls in the next few weeks 
See you then.